Well, a very good Wednesday night to you all. So nice to see you all here this evening. And we're going to take a bit of a break tonight from our studies in First Samuel. And, uh, you know, there was a pretty major revelation that came about over this past Easter weekend. And uh, Ilan Omar, the uh, congresswoman from Minneapolis, uh, gave out the massive revelation that was picked up by the New York Times and reported widely over the weekend that Jesus was actually a Palestinian. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that happened since the word Palestine didn't even come about until 135 AD, but somehow uh, Jesus was not a Jew after all, according to Omar, and uh, this story is being widely circulated and also highly criticized, and rightfully so. What did Pilate say about Jesus? He is the king of who? The Palestinians? He's the king of the Jews. Amen? Amen. Now, if you would tonight, open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Uh, Go to Matthew, turn left two books, and you'll find it there. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 will be our reading tonight. And the truth is, we know that in the last days, there's going to be one piece of real estate that becomes the focus of world attention. Now, it began at the rebirth of the nation of Israel back on May 14th, 1948, when 8,019 square miles became the central point of world attention and remained so for quite some time. Then in 1967, that focus became a little more focused and and, uh, whittled down, if you will, to some 71 square miles where Jerusalem became the burdensome stone that is prophesied to be of the whole world. And we know eventually some 35 acres is going to become what the world focuses their attention on. It's called the Temple Mount. And there is going to be a temple rebuilt. It is the third temple. It is a temple that is not sanctioned by Scripture. And therefore, Christians should not be sending their money to rebuild the third temple. It's the temple of the Antichrist. And he is going to commit the abomination of desolation within it. We also know that in these last days that there's going to be a rise in anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism takes on many forms. We see it in the form of violence. We can think of it at the uh, rampant stage like under Hitler and the Nazis. But we also need to understand that anti-Semitism is also spiritual. It's all spiritual at its base, but there's also anti-Semitism today in the form of replacement theology. Now, has the church replaced Israel? No, not at all. Yet, the dominant belief within the church in America today is that the Israel of today is not the Israel of the Bible and that they are simply uh, occupiers, so to speak, of territory that is rightfully that of the Palestinian people. We have seen the focus change dramatically in our day as we saw the move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the eternal capital of Israel, by our own president and our embassy moving there. Then we saw the annexing of the Golan Heights, at least the recognition of it, by this same administration, which caused further anxiety within the international community. So, whose land is it? Do the Syrians have the right to the Golan Heights, or did God give it to the Jews? Now, I want to set the stage for our time tonight with a few historical facts, so bear with me for a few moments as I read through this. On May 15, 1948, early in the morning, just after midnight, the day the British mandate over Palestine, as it was called by the mandate, ended, the armies of five neighboring Arab countries invaded the new state of Israel, which had declared its independence earlier on that same day. Now, it was heralded by an Egyptian air attack on Tel Aviv. It was resisted as best as they could. From the northeast and south came the armies of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, or Jordan as we know it, and Egypt. The armies that invaded Israel on May 15, 1948, were fully equipped with the modern and mechanized uh, hardware of warfare of at least that time. They had artillery. They had tanks, they had armored vehicles, they had armored personnel carriers, they had machine guns, they had mortars, all types of small arms in great quantities, full supplies of ammunition, oil, and gasoline. And furthermore, Egypt, Iraq, and Syria had air forces. And as sovereign states, they had no difficulty in securing whatever armaments they needed through normal channels from Britain and other 
countries friendly to their cause. In contrast, Israel had no artillery. Israel had no tanks. In the early days of the war of 1948, Israel had no aircraft. Some supplies of these weapons arrived in the days that followed. However, little more than small arms, and very few of those, were how they fought beginning on May 28, 1948. And they, uh, the Haganah, which now merged into what we know, or evolved into what we know as the IDF today, was born. Israel was invaded from all directions. They had to cope with the outbreak of over a thousand fires. Numerous settlements uh, in their outposts in the Galilee and the Negev were isolated. They were open to attack from all sides by the Arabs and Egyptians. They had to rely on their own perseverance. Their small arms fire to stave off defeat. And a very hastily organized army had to engage in an offensive action to remove the enemy from their positions, block the advance of their columns, and rush to seal gaps in Israel's defenses. Now... Ever since this invasion on May 15, 1948, it's been pretty smooth sailing for Israel ever since then. Right? 1956, they had the Suez Sinai campaign, and again, the same nations were involved. In 1967, the Six-Day War, where East Jerusalem was recaptured. 1967 to 1970 was the War of Attrition. 1973 was the Yom Kippur War, when the Golan was captured. 1982 to 1985 was the First Lebanon War. 88 to 92, the First Intifada, or Uprising, 2002. Operation Defensive Shield, which was in response to the terrorists of the West Bank, 2002 to 2005. The Palestinian War, 2006, was the second Lebanon War. 2008 to 9 was the Operation Cast Lead, again a war with Gaza. 2012 was Operation Pillar of Defense, which again was in response to escalating rocket fire from Gaza. 2014, Operation Protective Edge. Again, rocket fire from Gaza. And since 2014, hundreds of rockets, incendiary balloons, car and knife attacks have been made on Israeli citizens. Now, there's a common theme to all those things, and that is Israel was never the aggressor. They were always the respondent. And that's exactly how the media presents it today, right? Not at all. The international community constantly condemns the nation of Israel. Since 1977, the United Nations has sponsored the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people on November 29th. The date in 1947 when the UN General Assembly approved the partition resolution. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called November 29th a day of mourning and a day of grief. And this event takes place still every year at the UN headquarters in New York and at the UN offices of both Geneva and Vienna and other places also. Now, if that were not enough, on November 26, 2013, the General Assembly decided to proclaim 2014 the International Year of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. In other words, every November 29th, the United Nations publicly mourns the passage of its own two-state solution, that to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli dispute that could have resulted in an independent Palestinian state more than six decades ago. Listen, six decades ago, the two-state solution was offered to Israel and the Palestinians. Israel rejected it, or Israel accepted it, rather, and the Palestinians rejected it. That's why there is the adage that floats around Israel The Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Now, the neighboring Arab nations rejected it as well. But that's not the limitation of anti-Semitism in our day or in our country. The Presbyterian Church, USA, has passed a series of resolutions just last year at its General Assembly in support of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. It's called the BDS movement, if you ever see that floating around on social media. That's what it stands for, boycott, divest, and sanction. Do not do business with companies that are based in Israel. Do not do business with companies that do business with Israel. Now, I would give you the counsel to find a list of those businesses and buy all you can from them. Now, 
Among the measures passed by the Presbyterian Church, it includes the approval of a report in a 429 to 129 vote that seeks to examine the two-state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and alternatives to it, including but not limited to that of two sovereign states, that being Israel and Palestine. The report says that Israel's policy trajectory of continued settlements and brutal application or occupation, rather, is deeply troubling. The Presbyterian Church USA is deeply troubled by the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory. You know, the first thing we need to realize is that if you go back before 1967, you will not find the word Palestinian in any documents. Anybody that says that Palestinians are an ancient people and try and create an association uh, with anyone is going to have a hard time proving it because Yasser Arafat coined the phrase, so to speak, in 67, trying to establish some type of right of the Palestinian people to the land predating Israel. He said they were, first of all, the descendants of the Canaanites. Well, one of his advisors told him, Yasser, don't be telling people that because the Bible says that the Israelites are supposed to wipe out the Canaanites. We don't want to be the descendants of the Canaanites. So then he tried to make an association with the ancient Philistines, even though Arab leaders around the world were telling the world that the Palestinians were nothing more than Syrian Arabs. So they still tried to create an association with the land by claiming to be the descendants of the Philistines. Well, here's the first problem. The Philistines were from Crete. They were known as the Aegean Sea people. They weren't Arabs by ethnicity. So the Palestinians cannot be their descendants. So who are the Palestinians? Well, they're a made up people. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. Anything prior to 1967 that the term Palestinian was used, it was associated with Jews living in Israel. They were the ones called the Palestinians, especially after they began to return beginning in 1892 with the first Aliyah when the Jews were coming back into the land from around the world. Now, The Presbyterian Church USA goes on to say, not only does it make a two-state solution increasingly difficult, if not impossible to achieve, but the emerging de facto single-state systematic violation of Palestinian rights and democratic values is eroding Israel's moral legitimacy, their report added. The Palestinian rights and democratic values. There are no democratic values in the Gaza Strip. There is just tyrannical rule by Hamas, which takes the billions of dollars which have been donated by well-meaning and intended governments and individuals from around the world and uses them to build tunnels into Israel and also to buy munitions from countries that will sell it to them. Now, in the Presbyterian USA Church's report, there's no mention of almost 20,000 rockets that have been fired into Israel from the Gaza Strip since Israel gave the Gaza Strip back over to the Palestinians, quote-unquote, in 2005. Speaking at the UN General Assembly in New York, Jordan's King Abdullah spoke of the importance between Israel and the Palestinians, and he blamed Israel for the ongoing conflict for continued unrest in the region and within their borders. He went on to say, addressing the UN, no injustice has spread more bitter fruit than the denial of a Palestinian state. I say peace is a conscious decision, Abdullah went on to say. Israel has to embrace peace or eventually be engulfed in a sea of hatred in a region of turmoil. Well, they, are, they are already engulfed in a sea of hatred, so nothing is going to change. Now, what we need to remember tonight is Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country. Remember, he was from Ur of the Chaldees, the predecessors to the Babylonians. Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you until the church replaces Israel. Is that what your Bible says? No. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of the Messiah being born through the Jews. Now in Genesis 13, the next chapter, we're told the Lord gave to Abram all the land of Canaan. 
And then in Genesis 15, we're told that this land that was given was given under an unconditional and everlasting covenant. Then Genesis 17 also reveals this component of the unconditional everlasting covenant where the Lord says in 7 and 8 of Genesis 17, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for and what? Everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an what? Everlasting possession and I will be their God. Now, the details of this covenant are further qualified in Genesis 17, where the descendants of Abraham that are in question are identified as those of the circumcision. What ethnic group is referred to as those of the circumcision? It is the Jews. Whose land is it? It's the Jews, the land of Israel. So here's the question. Why all the hatred? Why the antagonism and anti-Semitism that we see today? I want you to consider something. The Jews account for less than 0.19% of the total world population, yet they have contributed 25% of all the Nobel laureates since they've been awarding the prize. They have won more than any other country in chemistry, economics, medicine, physics, yet they're hated by a world that they had helped so greatly. They gave us, and it's always funny, these people that uh, are putting up these boycott Israel things are doing so on their phones that have Intel technology, which was an invention of Israel. ScanDisk was invented by Israel. Early sense detection medical monitoring was an invention of Israel. The optical heartbeat monitor was invented in Israel. They have now invented something called hydrospin piping which is found or used rather in countries as generators where they don't have electricity. They use running water and create electricity through pipes uh, with basically the hydroelectric system within them. They have just invented also clear solar panels, which they believe are going to replace the windows in every high-rise building around the world, making any building completely energy independent. Now, with all these contributions to our world, why is, and here's the title of our time tonight, Jerusalem, one city against the world? Why is the world so focused on Jerusalem? And again, the answer is simple. And again, the answer is found all the way back in the beginning in Genesis, where in 3, 14 and 15, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Satan well understood that biologically the woman didn't carry the seed, a male carries the seed. And therefore, there was a supernaturally conceived male child that was foretold here in the garden. And as the progressive revelation of God continued to unfold, he then began to understand that this male child was going to come through a people group known as Israel or the Jews. Therefore, early in Israel's history, under the Egyptian bondage and slavery, he sought to kill all the male children. This was Satan's inspiration of Pharaoh. And we later see the same efforts done by Herod. He was trying to kill the male child. All male children under uh, two years of age were slain, hoping to kill the one who was born king of the Jews. Yet he failed. The supernaturally conceived male child was born, he lived, he died, he rose again and ascended to heaven and he is in heaven with the Father as we sit here today. And thus Satan's head was bruised. Now, since Satan couldn't kill the seed of the woman or the male child uh, born through Israel, his hope and efforts then became trying to eliminate the nation of Israel and thus nullifying the unconditional everlasting covenant that God had made with his people. And in that, he could exalt himself, which has always been his goal, even above God. I have good news today. He will not succeed. 
He will not destroy the nation of Israel. How do we know? We have clear and definitive answers from multiple Old Testament prophets, and we'll examine one in particular in detail. But let me give you an example of another from the prophet Amos in 9, 14 to 15, where he said, I will bring back the captives of my people who? Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. Has that happened in Israel? They've turned the marshland and the desert into a land blooming with uh, flowing with milk and honey, so to speak. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I had given them, says who? The Lord your God. Does God keep his word? Always. And therefore, the phrase pulled up can also be translated as uprooted. When the Jews are back in the land, they are not going to be uprooted ever again, says the Lord your God. Now, this is in the process of being fulfilled. Some would argue it's fulfilled. Others, it's fulfilled in part. But what we're about to read is, in essence, what's coming next. And I believe it's on the very near horizon. So, now that we finish that very long introduction, let's get to our even longer message. Would you stand and read with me, please, from Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And we'll find out why Jerusalem is one city against the world. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut into pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. Somebody say amen. Now you may be seated. I want to share three truths tonight that stem out of this unconditional everlasting covenant made with Abram Abram, and his descendants through Isaac and therefore Jacob, as well as the land once known as Canaan, now called the land of Israel. Now, the first thing we need to highlight comes from verse 1, where maybe the language is a bit cumbersome for you and I, where we're told the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Now, this would best be understood, the word burden, that is, as an oracle or a prophetic word. So this is a word from the Lord about the future to Israel. We also encounter the phrase that day. You will find it used 16 times in Zechariah chapter 12 to 14, and it's all regarding the same time period. It's elsewhere described as the day of Jacob's trouble. It's described as the great and terrible day of the Lord. We call it the great tribulation, and a portion of chapter 14 actually spills over into the millennium for just a few verses. But the prophet says to the Jews, this is an oracle from the one who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him, and he says these things are going to come against you in that day or in the great tribulation. Now, some would argue that that day happened in 70 AD when Titus destroyed both Jerusalem and the temple and the Jews uh, began to be uh, experiencing di- the diaspora that would last nearly uh, 2,000 years. Specifically, it would come to pass under Hadrian in 135 A.D. Now, the problem with believing that all these things happened in 70 A.D. under Titus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is that none of the other things described in Zechariah 12 to 14 happened in 70 A.D. 
And those who hold that position say the same thing about the Olivet Discourse, that in Matthew 24 and 25, all that was fulfilled in 70 AD, and they encounter the same problem. Jesus said in what I like to call the preamble to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 3 to 8, where he answered the four inquiring disciples about what's going to happen before the Lord returns. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the what? The beginning of sorrows. That can also be translated as the birth pangs. Now, in 70 AD, Titus, a Roman general, ransacked the city, destroyed the temple. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed. Others were enslaved. But there were not many claiming to be Christ. There were not wars and rumors of wars. There were no ethnic upheavals outside the Roman Jewish one. There was no rampant pestilence. There was no rampant famine. There were no earthquakes in various places happening in a birth pang like progression that Jesus foretold in the Olivet Discourse. Now, most who hold the position that all of this is historic and uh, preterism is a way to describe that belief. There are those who are full preterists, meaning they believe all prophecies have been fulfilled. And there are others who are partial preterists who believe that most prophecies have been fulfilled except the second coming. Well, those who hold this position, by and large, the vast majority of them also believe in replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel and the modern state of Israel is not the Israel of the Bible. Now listen, we need to be aware of this because we're going to encounter Christians out there in day-to-day life who are taught this from their church. As I said, the percentages are strong in the 90 percentile range of Christians who believe that modern Israel is not the Israel of the Bible. Here's the first problem with that. Jeremiah 31 says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Somebody say amen or hallelujah or something. If those ordinances depart from me, before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel and the descendants of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured or if heaven above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel, all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says who? Says the Lord, listen, God said, if the sun doesn't come up in the morning and if the moon doesn't rule the night sky, if the waves quit crashing on the shore, you'll know that I have cast off the nation of Israel forever for everything that they have done. And then he adds to that, if you can figure out how big the heavens are, if you can actually measure them, or if you can figure out how the earth is a sphere hanging in empty space all by itself, if you can understand the foundations of the earth, then you're going to know that I have cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done. Well, we know technically or scientifically the sun doesn't actually rise in the morning, but it came up today, didn't it? And the moon will be out tonight in all of its phases. Now, this tells us something that we need to establish as a foundational truth. Now listen, we've well established the fact that we cannot remember important things a lot of times, but we can remember anything that's corny, right? Like some kind of jingle from a dumb commercial that we can't shake for days and weeks and months at times. We think about it all the time. So this is kind of packaged in a corny way, but it's true and it is beyond dispute. Listen this evening, if God was finished with the nation of Israel, there wouldn't be one. If God was finished with the nation of Israel, there wouldn't be one. 
Listen, the whole of the nation and the future of Israel, as it's represented in the Bible, is essential to eschatology. If you deny, misplace, or replace Israel, your whole prophetic interpretation is going to be askew, just like that of the preterists or those who have a historic perspective on the Olivet Discourse and the things in Zechariah 12 to 14. Now listen, just because God disciplines his people and even disciplines them severely and even disciplines them for nearly two millennia, that doesn't mean he's done with them. Does God discipline his church? Does he discipline those whom he loves? Does that mean he's finished with us? Then since he is the unchanging God, why would he do that with the Jews? After all, 1 Peter 4.17 says the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Listen, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He has not cast off his people. And my comment to those who say modern Israel is not the Israel of the Bible is simply this. Then why is everything that the Bible said was going to happen to them happening right before our eyes? If he's done with them, why is prophecy still being fulfilled? And who are these people that speak the same Hebrew language? Who are these people who have the same names of their ancient ancestors? They live in the same geographic region as ancient Israel. They have genealogies dating all the way back to those of the time of the Bible. They share the same DNA with the ancient Israelites. If they're not the Israel of the Bible, then who are they? How can they be the same people, bear the same names, live in the same geographic region, and most of all have an unconditional eternal promise from God concerning the land, but they're not the same nation? That was prophesied in the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. So then we have to ask the question, why did God tell Daniel 70 weeks were determined for your people's city? And city instead of 69. Did God change his mind about the Jews because of their behavior? Therefore, can he then change his mind about us because of our behavior? Somebody say, I hope not. No, he doesn't. Amen. Now, consider this horrifying conclusion. Did God say to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and city, but he was wrong. There were only 69 that were going to come to pass. Listen, think about this. When God says you're finished, you're finished. There is not going to be any more. Obadiah 1.18 gives us an example where we're told about the house of Jacob being a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be what? Stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. Listen to what it says. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. There are no descendants of Esau today. They have all been eliminated. There are no Edomites today because God said there won't be. Yet a people scattered among the nations for nearly two millennia are back in the same land that was given to Abram by unconditional everlasting covenant. Even though every other people group throughout history taken into captivity, carried off to other nations, have assimilated into other cultures and disappeared from the pages of history, this isn't true for the Jews. Israel today is the Israel of the Bible. Think about it. When was the last time you met a Hivite or a Girgashite? Or Perizzite, have you ever run into anybody claiming to be of that nationality? Well, of course not. They are people that are conquered and have long passed from the world scene. Listen, if God, listen, if God was finished with the nation of Israel, especially the nation of Israel, there wouldn't be one. But he prophesied that there would be, and there is. Now, I mentioned that everything the Bible said would happen to Israel is happening. So let's look at a couple of examples. First, read two and three with me again, where we're told, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. And then he goes on to talk about all nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, listen, something's going to transition even in the good old U.S. of A. I'm thankful that we have a president that is supportive of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, according to the Jews in Israel, he is the most supportive president that the United States has ever had and Israel has ever been favored to be friended with. But something's going to change. When it says all nations, it means all nations. Now, I'm hoping that what changes with the political atmosphere in this country isn't the next election. I'm praying that what changes the attitude of this country towards Israel is the rapture of the church. And we're all gone. And those who are anti-Israel here today, then 
join the rest of the nations. Now, again, kind of back to the historical perspective of the preterist position. Rome was against Israel in 70 AD. We just read in verse 3, all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered against Israel. Rome was against Israel in 70 AD, but China wasn't. The Samham people of the Korean Peninsula, they weren't either. Nor were the Chitu people of Southeast Asia or the Lysiah people of the Caucasus. They all existed at the time, but they weren't against Israel. It was only the Romans who were. And the point is, as I said, our text says all nations and all nations doesn't mean just Rome. It means all nations. So therefore, it was not fulfilled in 70 AD. It is a yet future day. Now, it's further described in the following verses in Zechariah 12, 9 and 10. You guys still here? Listen, Zechariah 9 and 10 will go on to say, it shall be in that day, there's a phrase again, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. This happens during the tribulation. Then they will look on me whom they pierced, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, when the nations of the world are in a drunken hatred of Jerusalem and it is a burdensome stone to all the world, God is going to pour out his spirit on the Jews, open the eyes of the nation to the fact that they crucified their own Messiah. Did that happen in 70 AD? No, not even close. Has it happened since? No. So therefore, it must be a yet future day. Now, the Hebrew word translated as drunkenness can mean to reel from intoxication. It can also mean to tremble. And that would be a more fitting understanding of the context. Have you ever seen anyone so mad they're trembling? This is the attitude of the world In that day, they are going to be so angry with Israel that they tremble in anger. The subject of Jerusalem will be such a continual burden to the hearts and minds of the world that they will be livid with and at the nation of Israel. Now, thinking back to our introduction and the constant attacks and the people themselves, the question then is why? Why with all of Israel's contributions to the world would they be so hated? Is it really the Palestinian issue? Well, that doesn't make sense because the Arabs who now call themselves Palestinians vacated the city of Israel or the cities of Israel because they were told by the five nations that invaded them, get away, we're going to wipe them off the map. And that's why there's refugee camps today. They are those who moved out so Egypt and their companions could destroy the Jews on the first day the nation was declared. They formed refugee camps. Many remain in them to this day because they chose to leave behind their homes so their fellow Arabs and Egyptians could destroy the Jews. Now, is that Israel's fault? Well, of course not. Now, it can't be because of occupied territories. That doesn't make sense either. They're occupying the territory that God gave them. And the 8,000 plus square miles that Israel uh, is comprised of at this point in time isn't even close to the amount of land that God gave them. If you look on a map at all the countries that are housed or home to the Arabs and then add the Egyptians to that, and by the way, the Egyptians are not Arabs, they're often called that, but they're a different people group altogether. But the fact is, the uh, Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. And Ishmael was only a few years older than Isaac when Isaac was born, possibly as many as 13 years old. And when Joseph went into Egypt, there's two uh, ways to present it in the Old Testament. There were either 72 or 75 of his descendants that went with him. The whole nation was 75 people. So if the Egyptians are the descendants of Ishmael, how could they be millions in number and be a world power when Ishmael was only 13 years older than Isaac? The Egyptians are not Arabs. They are Egyptians. The Arabs are uh, the descendants of Ishmael. But the fact is, the boundaries that God gave to the Jews spans from the Nile in Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River in Iraq. That's the land God has given them. Are they occupying that much land? No, not at all. They're only occupying 8,019 square miles of the huge portion of land that God had assigned to them. So what is going on? 
Why is Jerusalem such a source of contention? Why does the world tremble in anger? Well, the heart of the matter, again, is spiritual and goes all the way back to Genesis 3, as we talked about earlier. But here's the second thing I want you to take note of tonight when the debate pops up concerning Jerusalem and the turning of the world against it. Here's the second thing we need to remember. Jerusalem is the one battle Satan knows he can't afford to lose. Jerusalem is the one battle Satan knows he can't afford to lose, but we know he's going to lose that battle. He lost the battle with Christ on the cross. He lost the battle at the tomb. Uh, The stone was rolled away. Jesus rose again early in the morning on the first day of the week. Now, we know that we are at war with principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness of this age. And one of the most significant evidences of that is Satan's efforts to destroy the Jews. Now, said before, I'll say it again tonight, if God is done with the nation of Israel, somebody forgot to tell the devil, because he's still trying to wipe them out. In 1 Kings 11.36, we're told, And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me. Where? In Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. Second Chronicles 7.16, the Lord says, For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, the temple that Solomon built, that my name may be there for how long? Forever. And my eyes and heart will be there perpetually. Since Satan again was unsuccessful at killing the supernaturally conceived male child, he's been trying to kill the Jews ever since. And he's been failing at that as well, even through Hitler. But he keeps coming with his attention now dedicated to the destruction or division of Jerusalem. His last hope then is to wipe out the city that God has chosen for himself. Now, we know this is so from Revelation 27 to 10. We're told when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What's the beloved city? Jerusalem. That's another phrase associated with Jerusalem. And fire came down from who? From where? Out of heaven and did what? Devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night. For how long? Forever and ever. Listen, even after a thousand years in chains, being released by God for a short time to go out and deceive the nations, Satan tries to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because he has to. He has to keep his efforts moving forward to break some portion of God's word. But we know how the story ends. God wins. The devil loses. He's cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, as we just read a moment ago. Now, in the last days, the world is going to be drunken with a hatred for Israel because the world is going to be following the dragon and be filled with hatred for Israel's God. Now, in verses 4 to 6, we're also told in that day, there's a phrase again, says the Lord that I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors or the leaders of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. Now, many people would like to argue that this is the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is totally inconsistent because there's a different means by which the invading forces are destroyed. They're destroyed by an earthquake and great hailstones of blood mingled with fire, or fire mingled with blood uh, during that particular scenario. This is Israel fighting against her enemies and God giving them the power to subdue them and destroy them. Now we've moved in essence from the siege of Israel to now the shielding of Israel and how God is going to protect them in a world filled with a drunken hatred of them. 
Now we're still the, in the in that day portion in which the Lord is judging the earth and the return of Christ is going to come. And in that day, the Lord says, I'm going to strike every horse with confusion and the rider with madness. And then Zechariah 14, 3, one of my favorite verses says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now, how does the Lord fight? Well, go back and look at the 10 plagues of Egypt. Go back and look at Jericho. Go back and look at the encounter with Gideon against the Midianites. And yet here, it will be poured out in undiluted measure. And God is going to engage the enemies of Israel directly as he multiplies the capabilities of the IDF or whoever the fighting force is during the tribulation. The Lord shall save the tents of Judah first. And that reminds us that the divided kingdom was never God's will. There was never meant to be a Judah and a northern kingdom of Israel. Thus, this being the result of Israel's uh, rebellion and rejection of God. It also reminds us that Judah was a kingly tribe from which Jesus came. And those of Judah will say, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts. This symbolizes again the unifying of Israel as one nation under their God. Horses are symbolic, speaking of strength and power. They are smitten with confusion and they're riders with madness. And it tells us that God's going to bring the enemy's plans to nothing. And in Exodus 23, 27 to 28, the Lord said, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you meaning run from them, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. So the tactic is nothing new, but again, it's associated with the land and the people of the land, they being the Jews. It happened at the Red Sea. It happened with Gideon and his conquest of the Midianites. And this is part of how the Lord fights. And in that day, God is going to make the weapons of Israel as she defends herself like a torch Uh, or a bucket of hot coals, rather, in a wood pile or a fiery torch thrown into sheaves of dried stalks of grain, and they shall devour all the people who are surrounding Jerusalem. All their strategies and weaponry will work and hit their targets during this time. Now, this leads us to our final conclusion tonight, which is simply this. Even though there is one city against the world in that day, Here's what we need to remember. During the tribulation, all forms of anti-Semitism will be met with divine wrath. During the tribulation, all forms of anti-Semitism will be met with divine wrath. Now, that's why I'm not signing up for the BDS movement. That's why I highly suggest you don't either. Because God is not against Israel. And if he's not against Israel, I don't want to be against Israel either. Amen? Amen. Now... God is going to fight against all the nations that fought against Israel, whether they fought against them in the streets, whether they fought against them at the UN, whether they fought against them through boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. They will be dealt with directly by Almighty God. Now, Psalm 46, 4-7 says, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, help her just as the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He utters his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Somebody say amen. Now, terror and confusion seizes the ranks of the world's armies. And while they have imagined they have gained the victory, they find out that rather than chasing the vanquished Jews into defeat, they're actually rushing into destruction themselves. Now, listen tonight. I don't know how you can say you are for God, but you're against Israel. I don't know how anybody can arrive at that conclusion. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was renamed by God. He went from heel catcher. Israel means either governed by God or prince of God. Now, he didn't used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So personally, I'd be very careful 
about accusing God of breaking an everlasting, unconditional covenant with his people. Think about it. Is much of the world united in hatred of the Jews today? Yes, absolutely. Did not Jesus say that if we were of the world, the world would love us? But because we're not of the world, the world hates us? Did Jesus say that? John 15, 19, if you want to look it up. So, the world hates the Jews, the chosen people of God. The world hates the church, the chosen people of God. The Jews are the chosen people of God by birth. The church are the chosen people of God by faith. And the Lord said, the world is going to hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not, the world will hate you. Therefore, the Jews must still be the chosen people of God because the world hates them. Now, our conclusion is simply this. Jesus is coming first and soon for his church. And then he's coming back to deal with those who stood against Israel as he opens the Jews' eyes, both to their plight and to their Messiah. And the Lord is going to fight as he fights in the day of battle. Job 38, a fantastic chapter, insight behind the scenes, kind of a pulling back of the curtain into the heavenly realm for a moment, talks about a treasury of hail reserved for the time of the end. Did you know that God has a treasury of hail that he has stored up, that he's going to use to fight against the enemies of Israel? Did you know that the book of Revelation says that there's going to be an asteroid that strikes the earth during the tribulation and a comet is going to strike the earth, causing all the fresh water supply of the earth to become bitter or radioactive? Do you know that during the tribulation there's going to be an earthquake of a magnitude that's unprecedented? On the face of the earth, the earthquake in Revelation 16 is going to be so huge. The Bible says it's bigger than any earthquake since men were on the face of the earth. The biggest earthquake in world history. During the tribulation, the sun is going to scorch men's bodies. Darkness is going to cover the earth. And we're told that it is a darkness that is so dark that people are going to be in pain. Now, these and many other ways are how the Lord's fight. Lord fights. So, listen. I suggest we just skip the whole tribulation thing and go in the rapture. Amen. Two thirds of the Jews are going to die during the tribulation. One third are going to survive and enter into the kingdom age as believers in Yeshua. And thus all Israel will be saved. God is not done with the nation of Israel, but he will soon make short work of all of her enemies. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you for giving us such clarity through your prophets. Lord, both those in the Old Testament and those who penned epistles for us in the New. Paul and John, who gave us such vivid detail about your love for Israel and not having cast them off, even though you scattered them among the nations for a long season of their history. So we thank you, Lord, that we have sufficient evidence to make right decisions concerning Israel and, Lord, not be against the people that you are for and to recognize that the land that you apportion to them by unconditional and everlasting covenant still stands today. It has to. It had no conditions and it lasts forever. So we thank you that you are fulfilling your word right before our eyes. And therefore, we can live with an expectation of the redemption of our bodies into the glorious ones like Jesus in a moment and twinkling of an eye. To that we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And thank you for the information we've garnered tonight to help us, Lord, be a support to the nation that you love and the one you're going to fight for, even in that day. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, Amen.